Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. If you're one of our many new listeners, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. It's because of listeners like you that each and every week, our team here at Acton looks forward to bringing you another great episode. And I know we couldn't do it without you. If you want to reach our team and let us know what you think of the show or even suggest topics you want to hear covered, you can email me at actinline at actin.org. Now, on this episode of the podcast, we'll first be talking about barriers to religious liberty facing faith-based adoption and foster care providers. State governments are increasingly taking action to cut off state funding for faith-based agencies that want to prioritize placing children in homes with married mothers and fathers on religious grounds. Kate Anderson, who serves as legal counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom, joins me on this episode to shed light on these attacks against religious liberty and explains just how important faith-based agencies are in the foster care system. Then on the second segment, Acton Samuel Gregg speaks with Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education, to break down how many of today's trends echo those of ancient Rome, making the lessons of its fall all the more relevant for us now. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Today, I'm joined by Kate Anderson, who serves as Senior Legal Counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom, to tell me more about a current case involving issues in foster care and adoption, as well as religious liberty. Kate, thank you for coming on to the show. Thank you for having me. To start from the beginning, on April 25, Catholic Charities West Michigan filed a lawsuit against West Michigan Department of Health and Human Services in defiance of new barriers that prevent them from conducting their business in line with their religious beliefs. Can you explain the basics of this case for us? How is religious liberty on the line here? Yes. So every child deserves a home with a loving mother mother and father, and religious-based foster and adoption care entities uh, help provide that and make that happen. Um, Catholic Charities of West Michigan is one of the largest um, adoption and foster care providers in West Michigan. They've been operating for over 70 years, and in just the last 10 years, they were able to place 4,500 children in loving homes. That's a lot of good work. That's a lot of kids that are finding a mom and a dad. Um, And the state of Michigan has a law that recognizes that Catholic Charities and other charities like it uh, can operate according to their religious beliefs because Catholic Charities does operate according to its Catholic identity and beliefs. But what's happened in Michigan is with the incoming of the current governor, or current AG, um, she has taken aim at Catholic Charities and she's trying to strip their funding and push them out of the foster care and adoption space because of their Catholic identity and their beliefs. So Catholic Charities is looking at having their funding stripped away at this point. Are they also looking at having their doors closed? Well, it's somewhat one and the same because um, foster and adoption care um, organizations operate largely through state funding. Um, That's how they provide the care that they need. So what she's done is ignore uh, the law that protects them uh, that allows Catholic Charities to, uh, to operate according to their religious beliefs, Um, And because they hold the belief that children should be in a loving home with a mother and a father, um, she has threatened to take their funding away. That's why we filed the lawsuit. 
Now, we know that in 2015, Michigan passed a law protecting the religious liberty of faith-based adoption in foster care agencies, but the Attorney General Dana Nessel, she has stepped in and promised to take away the state funding for agencies that refuse to provide children for same-sex couples. How was she able to do that? What's the motivation here? Well, we believe it's religious, uh, anti-religious hostility that we're seeing, and we're seeing that grow around the country. Um, She's essentially ignoring the law that is there to protect Catholic charities and other charities like it, and saying that if they operate according to their beliefs, then the state won't fund them. There was um, a prior lawsuit in Michigan that was recently settled, um, sort of touching on some of these issues. But the case was settled out of court, um, and so there's no precedent in it. Um, it didn't entirely touch on these issues. So um, what's at stake here is the ability of religious organizations to operate according to their beliefs. And we must remember here that kids are the ones that are hanging in the balance here. There are over 13,000 children in foster care um, in Michigan, and um, those kids need homes. And uh, the goal in Michigan should be to make those children, make it possible for those children to be adopted. And so the model has always been the more organizations that are providing those services, the more children that can be adopted. And yet, despite the protections that were recognized by the legislature to let those things happen, um, the current attorney general is trying to push faith-based organizations out of the adoption space so they cannot help children. Well, I'd like to dive in more into the topic of the foster care crisis going on right now. You wrote something that I thought was really alarming in an article for Acton's blog, and your article was titled, Anti-Religious Hostility Takes Aim at Foster Care and Adoption Agencies. In this article, you describe some of the details of this crisis, writing that, quote, the foster care crisis is so extreme that some states are hosting foster children in hotels and office buildings because there is nowhere else to place them. Can you explain more of this crisis for us? What does it look like and how many children are in the system nationally? Um, It's a very large number. I believe in the United States it's something like 400,000 children. In Michigan, um, I believe it's around 13,000 children. Uh, These are a lot of children that are in foster care, and a very low number of them are able to be adopted within that first year. Uh, So they tend to stay in that system year after year, Uh, and that's why most states are trying to take this approach that the more agencies we can get in doing good work, helping children find um, loving homes, the better we are. And I'm going to remind everyone that Catholic Charities of West Michigan has been doing this good work for 70 years um, and placed 4,500 children just in the last 10 years. So they're definitely making a dent in the number of children who need loving homes. And so that, to me, is what's most egregious about um, the Attorney General's position. She's um, taking her position based on hostility towards religion, and yet children are going to be harmed in the process. So how, how many states do have laws that prohibit adoption in foster care agencies from only placing children in homes with married, um, opposite-sex couples for religious reasons? Is this a growing trend? It is a growing trend. I'm not sure exactly how many states have them, but there are some states that are beginning to pass these types of laws in recognition of um, the idea that you need more agencies out there and that faith-based agencies tend to be very successful in um, 
being able to place children in loving homes. Um, and so we're seeing more and more states consider and start to adopt laws to protect uh, those faith-based agencies. And those laws really are right in line with the Constitution, which protects the ability of individuals and organizations to operate according to their religious beliefs. So it's nothing new. It's just um, basically putting into law in the state what the Constitution already recognizes. And these agencies, they would be state contracted, correct? Most of them are. From time to time, you run into an agency that works off of donations. And we've even seen one of those attacked in New York State um, where they don't receive any funding. And yet through the licensing system, New York is trying to go after that agency. Um, Its name is New Hope. Um, adoption services. But most of the time, agencies operate through state funding. And really, that's how the state cares for the foster kids, um, is to provide funding to agencies, because the state doesn't have enough resources to do it all on their own. Um, So that's how they take care of this crisis, is to work with agencies and provide the funding so that all of these good foster and adoption care agencies can help children find loving homes. I would like to also highlight how important these faith-based adoption agencies are because um, you also write in your piece that, quote, these faith-based organizations are often the best at finding homes for children in particularly challenging situations, such as groups of siblings, older children, and special needs children. Um, And you say in 2016, 45% of the children adopted through Catholic charities had special needs, which is a number that vastly outstrips the national average. So we're seeing here that there is a total priority for, I would say, ideology over just the uh, care of the children here. Yes, that is our concern, is that the children need to be the priority. Um, And I think that the current state law in Michigan recognizes that, but the attorney general uh, is not recognizing that in the way that she's approaching um, the faith-based organizations that do adoption and foster care services. And children are going to be harmed in that process. So how often do you see cases like this come up, specifically involving um, adoption and foster care agencies, and what is on the horizon? Well, we're seeing them come up more and more. Um, Historically, I think we've seen a couple of states, Illinois comes to mind, that have already done some of this and pushed um, good agencies out um, of being able to care for children. Uh, But we're starting to see this movement more and more across the um, country There's a case out of Pennsylvania right now that is going up to the Third Circuit um, uh, Court of Appeals on this issue. Um, And so we're starting to see this come up more and more, and I'm hopeful that eventually one will get to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court will recognize um, under the Constitution the right of these agencies to be able to operate according to their beliefs. Um, But Michigan is definitely a place where we're seeing a lot of activity on this right now. Kate, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast Do you have any last words on an aspect of this you'd like to emphasize before I let you go? Well, the Constitution protects everyone's right to live and to operate their businesses, their religious organizations, according to their beliefs. We are seeing that more and more under attack uh, in various ways. Um, People trying to force creative businesses to speak messages that violate their beliefs. Um, Governments trying to force adoption agencies out of the market because they... adhere to their Catholic beliefs. Um, And I just encourage everyone to stand strong in their faith and to support the good nonprofits um, and individuals in their community who are just trying to live according to their beliefs. I think the Constitution is strong on this point, uh, and we will see more clarity in the law um, in the upcoming years, especially from some of the highest courts. Um, 
but at the moment, I just encourage people to support uh, their local nonprofits and to stand strong in their faith. Kate, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you for having me. For over 29 years, Acton Institute has connected economic freedom, free enterprise, and entrepreneurship with a vibrant Judeo-Christian moral culture. In addition to common demands for limited government and lower taxes, Acton believes that liberty is best preserved when man's God-given dignity is recognized and respected. Only when our rights are rooted in something deeper, our intrinsic value as image bearers of God, are they absolutely secure. Please join Reverend Robert Sirico, co-founder and president of Acton Institute, along with other supporters and friends of Acton, on Wednesday, September 4, at the Duquesne Club in Pittsburgh, for a dinner and a special keynote address. Save your spot and become an official sponsor of our Pittsburgh dinner at acton.org events. Hello, my name is Sam Gregg, and I'm the Research Director at the Acton Institute, and I'd like to welcome you to this Acton Line podcast. It's my great pleasure to have with us today uh, Lawrence Reed, or as he's more well-known as Larry Reed, who's the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, Larry's been involved in free market causes and the general cause of liberty more generally, uh, and he's been working at FIFA for quite some time. Uh, he's a popular speaker. He writes a great deal. He's spoken at Acton University for us on numerous occasions. And it's my great pleasure to welcome him today to be speaking about a subject that he's going to be talking about at the Acton Institute uh, as part of our Lord Acton series, which is really the question of, a question which has preoccupied many people's minds, which is, what happened to Rome? How was it that this empire, which existed for what now seems like a very long time when you think about the overall course of history. How was it that this empire, which was once the ruler of what was for the West, Western man, the known world, how did this decline? So <clears throat> there are many people who have written on this, people like the famous historian Gibbon, who wrote a, a, a numerous books on this subject called The, history, uh, the Rise and the Decline of the Roman Empire. So, Larry, I'd like to start off by asking the first question, which I think is maybe the most obvious one. What got you interested in this particular subject? Well, first of all, thank you, Sam, for having me uh, once again on the Acton Institute's podcast. It's always a pleasure. I've been interested in the lessons from ancient Rome since uh, my college days. I think the first time uh, I really heard anybody talk about it was in economics class when my professor, a renowned Austrian school economist named Dr. Hans Senholtz, uh, gave a lecture on Rome. And uh, I, I recall being fascinated by the details that he talked about, some of the personalities involved. And that's when I started uh, uh, reading on Roman history, and I've done so now for about 40 years uh, off and on ever since. So when it comes to Rome, I mean, one of the classic explanations that's been articulated really since uh, Gibbon's time, I mean, he identifies many factors. He says things like the bureaucratization of the empire. He says that there was a, a weakening of the will to defend themselves, etc. But of course, he also singled out Christianity. He said that Christianity helped to explain the fall of the empire. He said things like it 
distracted the um, attention of Roman elites away from running the empire to obscure dogmatic and, and doctrinal discussions. He said that it <clears throat> helped to facilitate, Christianity helped to facilitate a type of pacifism within, within the empire, etc. So I'm wondering, what's your take on it? What do you, th what do you think of that general thesis? I think it's uh, deeply flawed, frankly, although I have great respect for, for Gibbon. But on this point, uh, I think it's a stretch to claim that Rome fell because of uh, Christianity or Christian influence. First of all, by the time uh, of the birth of Christ, the Roman Republic, uh, which is the greater half of Rome's 1,000 years of existence, had already expired. It had already, uh, even before Christians uh, made their appearance, uh, Rome had already given way from a republic with considerable respect for and protection of things like property rights and limited government and, and so forth, uh, to an, an imperial autocracy. And increasingly, in that second half of Rome's 1,000 years, roughly from roughly from the birth of Christ or shortly before until nearly 500 A.D., it was a, a, a tyranny uh, run by uh, often depraved emperors, even among the very first of the emperors. You have some nasty fellows. So it's hard to blame people who may have thought, hey, I think I found something far more important than any earthly emperor, namely Jesus Christ. It's hard to blame them for uh, the decline of a civilization run by uh, such depravity as, as you saw in the Roman uh, Empire. Switching topics slightly, uh, you spend a lot of time in the world of economics, teaching free market economics, writing about free market economics. And I know there are people that have written on the economic dimension of ancient, ancient, the ancient world. So the, the type of economies that we found in places like Judea, Samaria, Egypt, the Greek city-states, the Roman Republic, etc. What do you think, if anything, um, was the economic dimension of the decline of the Roman Empire? Was there an economic dimension to it in the first place? And if so, how did that manifest itself? There certainly was an economic dimension. Uh, as you look at the uh, last, say, 100 years of the Roman Republic, roughly the first century BC, when Roman freedoms uh, gave way to the uh, uh, to the empire and, and to centralized tyranny, you'll find that Rome increasingly found itself uh, in financial straits uh, because in the latter republic it became increasingly popular for Romans to call upon their government to give them something. Uh, the grain dole began in the, around 150 B.C., I believe, and gathered steam. And in time, uh, the Republican Senate uh, would buy the support of people by throwing more, more goodies at them. That put enormous economic constraints upon uh, the, uh, uh, the central government. And also they engaged increasingly in uh, civil strife and civil war and foreign adventurism. All of that cost a lot of money. And uh, then by the time you get uh, the first uh, 50 years or so of the Roman Empire, uh, you've got uh, massive economic issues. And it was in the 30s A.D. when there was a financial crisis and the central government responded by uh, issuing massive loans across the economy at zero rates of interest. 
Uh, and in the long run, that's kind of that kind of thing is just utterly unaffordable, and it only added to the massive burdens of an increasing Roman welfare state. I remember reading some early histories of the Roman Empire when I was at school, and I remember very clearly uh, people like Caesar, Julius Caesar, and other uh, Roman luminaries engaging in uh, basically vote buying exercises. <laughs> very, oh, very, yeah. very, very evident. But Absolutely. This, this uh, brings me to um, another question, which I think is pertinent. Is there any point at which you think the decline of the Roman Empire could have been reversed? Well, because I'm a believer, uh, Sam, in the power of ideas and uh, uh, the fact that ideas uh, are, are, can be so powerful that they can change history on a dime uh, on occasion, uh, I, I really think that uh, there probably was an opportunity almost at any time in Rome's slide uh, for a recovery. It all depended upon whether or not there could be uh, a, 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 you know, a widespread coming to our senses, uh, people realizing, hey, we've been following the wrong path here. This is uh, uh, self-defeating. It's, uh, we're, we're killing ourselves. Let's uh, uh, embrace a different way. Let's restore some of the old values that uh, gave us the freedoms and prosperity we once had. That could have happened, uh, but, of course, it becomes increasingly difficult for that to happen, as any society slides in the direction of a welfare warfare state, as Rome did. So I think they could have turned around at almost any time. But the fact is they didn't, and it was certainly uh, uh, increasingly problematic that they, uh, as time went on, that they would ever muster the, the integrity and the moral courage to do so. In that regard, was there any particular emperor who, to your mind, stands out as a figure who was either a significant reformer or who could have played, maybe given some different circumstances, a significant role in reversing the process of decline? Well, the very first one, Augustus, certainly had an opportunity. He could have, uh, uh, you know, uh, made a case uh, to people that they had uh, uh, lost a lot of their freedoms because of self-indulgence, a collapse of character, a concentration of power. And he could have uh, uh, turned a lot of the power he accumulated back. He could have restored the Senate. He could have done any number of things at that early stage to revive the old republic. But he didn't. Uh, he, he understood that there was enough sentiment for the ways of old at that point that he didn't uh, abolish the Senate. He didn't declare himself, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the only wielder of power uh, at all. He tried to continue with at least a facade of a Republican form of government. So there was sentiment there that he understood that could have perhaps supported a restoration of the old values. But uh, I think power to him was more important. And then immediately after him, uh, there's a string of emperors who uh, power meant uh, everything to them, and they were uh, easily corrupted and corrupt from the start anyway. Uh, so... Um, he might have been the one who could have turned it around. Uh, later on, maybe Marcus Aurelius, but that was pretty far into the future. Uh, things are far gone at that point, but uh, Augustus could have done it. Yes, I was going to ask you about Hadrian, and I was also going to ask you about uh, Diocletian, whether they were figures that could have turned the situation around. Well, of course, Diocletian uh, did just the opposite. Uh, now, maybe he, if he had been a man of 
of, of better character and the economic understanding, he uh, perhaps could have explained to the Roman people that the inflation they had suffered uh, that nearly destroyed the currency was the result of government policy, and he was going to change that, but instead he imposed uh, comprehensive wage and price controls. So he certainly didn't have the understanding uh, to uh, lead the the empire in the right direction at that late date, around 300 uh, A.D. Um, Aurelius, uh, 20, 30 years before Diocletian, he certainly showed some signs of being a man of... Uh, uh, of integrity, uh, uh, comparative integrity. You have to grade these guys on the curve <laughs> right. because you didn't get to the top position at that late stage in the Roman Empire without uh, uh, having some real problems in your uh, personal character. But uh, but nonetheless, he, he was one of the better ones, Marcus Aurelius, but not even he turned things around or exerted much effort to do so. Since this is the Acton Institute, could you say something about the economic factors that were driving uh, driving the, the type of decline that we see in the Roman Empire um, at different points. I mean, what type of economy are we really talking about? Well, Rome never had, even at its height in the old Republic, a uh, the kind of laissez-faire free market economy that uh, folks like you or I uh, would generally champion. But it did have, in the early uh, centuries of the Republic, a widespread respect for things like private property, rule of law, limited government, uh, and, and generally free trade. I mean, there was more sympathy and understanding for, for those sorts of things at that time than there would be uh, at any time in later Roman history. Um, but at some point, of course, people began to discover that, uh, hey, the political process can be uh, – uh, very attractive to us, not just for the purpose of government, but but for the purpose of getting something at other people's expense. And if, at first, uh, the expansion of this idea that, that government uh, can do a lot for us uh, took the form of paying off the veterans to buy the support of the men uh, who had uh, had military experience, uh, it uh, then morphed into throwing uh, grain subsidies at people uh, to buy their support. Uh, really a, a kind of vote-buying demagoguery uh, took hold, uh, sometimes intended to uh, quell potential uprisings, uh, other times directly to influence a future vote. But in the end, um, it, it all came around to a change in the view on the part of average citizens as to what the proper role of government was. It was no longer simply a, the peacekeeper in society, but rather the source of all things, including uh, uh, what you needed for daily sustenance. Well, speaking of daily, daily sustenance, let's talk a little bit about Christianity. <clears throat> we mentioned this a little bit before, but when Christianity emerged in the Roman Empire, so this is a very different religion, obviously, from the pagan mythologies that dominated the mindset of at least the sort of, uh, let's call them ordinary people. So I'm not talking about people who are the elites. I'm not talking about Stoic philosophers or Cicero. But when Christianity emerged, it produced a very different religious view of the world. How did this affect the empire? I mean, we mentioned before that Gibbon saw this as having a negative effect. But what's your assessment of the effect of the emergence of this new religion upon the Roman Empire. 
gifts. But keep in mind, of course, that it was 300 years after uh, the birth of Christ before the Roman government officially stopped persecuting Christians. And at that point, uh, Rome only had, it turns out, uh, less than two centuries to go uh, before it would be overrun by barbarians. So it was very late uh, before Christians were even granted uh, toleration uh, during the uh, latter phases of the Roman Empire. Uh, Certainly from a personal standpoint, uh, and as a Christian, I must uh, note that irrespective of what it meant for things like loyalty to the state, uh, the emergence of Christianity as a faith certainly uh, had to have an enormously positive uh, impact on on the lives of ordinary people who embraced it. Uh, That's the very nature of Christianity. Now, as far as its effect on society at large, I know that Gibbon argues that, well, it caused people to say, uh, you know, I'm going to divert my attention from the Roman state and what it tells me to do and instead focus on my personal savior. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, But you have to say, at that point, what reason would there have been for anybody, Christian or not, to give their lives for a corrupt, uh, oppressive tyranny? So I, I I can't blame anybody who says, look, I think I found something better here in Christ, and uh, this uh, lousy Roman state at this point that that uh, you know may have granted us toleration, but nonetheless is still a political tyranny, uh, just doesn't deserve uh, much attention or support. So I, I don't blame anybody for turning away from uh, uh, doing what the state was trying to tell them to do at that point. Well, when we think about the decline of the empire, there's lots of different arguments out there about whether it ended in a type of whimper in the sense that, okay, suddenly in about 450, in the 450s, Rome, the the last Roman emperor, in the West at least, is removed and is replaced. And it sort of ends in a sort of anticlimax, but it ends. Or was the collapse more... Sudden, because there's a there's a significant debate about this whether the whole thing just fell apart gradually over time, and it's sort of at least in the West, because we forget that the the empire persisted in the East for another thousand years. People forget that, but in the West, it sort of either just faded away or it it sort of ended in a type of cataclysm. What's your take on that particular argument? I think somewhere in between. Uh, now, there's no question that in 476, a very important uh, event occurred, and that was the uh, uh, the march of Odoacer from the uh, a German uh, uh, tribesman or barbarian, some would say, uh, into Rome, uh, and his replacement of the last of the Roman emperors uh, with, by his own authority. So that was an important event. But you look back on the previous uh, century, and you can see steady decline and decay. Uh, there were several sacks of Rome uh, in 410 A.D. Alaric the Goth, in fact, was able to penetrate to the very center of the city, and 
He held it for three days, sacked it of, a, of many of its treasures uh, before leaving. Right. This is why Augustine wrote his City of God, remember? That's right. Yes, yeah. he was. Right, because people were saying, the pagans were saying, look, this is what Christianity's done, and if we go back to the pagans, this pagan gods, this would never have happened to us. That's right. And Augustine penned a fantastic, a very eloquent defense of Christianity, and basically along the lines of what we've uh, just discussed, saying that it was not... Uh, Christianity that uh, was leading to the decline of Rome, but rather its own moral decay um, and political tyranny. So, no, I would say it's somewhere in between. 476 was a stark event, no question, uh, the official end of the Roman uh, Empire, but there was lots of uh, signs of it, lots of decay uh, and tumultuous uh, events for the previous century. Okay, we're getting close to uh, finishing time, but I've got two questions that I'd like to, to pose to you. The first, the first one is this. Um, in your reflections upon the decline of the empire, why did it collapse or disappear in the West but, but persist in the East? Because you had this thing called the Byzantine em Empire, and we often talk about it that way, but... The Byzantines understood themselves to be the Eastern Roman Empire. So do you have any particular ideas about why it continued to exist in the East in comparison to where the West, where it obviously disappeared? That's a very good uh, question, Sam. And I think the Eastern Empire certainly benefited from the fact that the assault of foreign barbarians uh, tended to be concentrated on, on Rome and the, and the West. Um, so that may have been a factor. The Romans had so weakened themselves, they became uh, like uh, ripe fruit, ready for the plucking by those barbarians. But but uh, they tended to focus on uh, on the western part of the empire, and not the east. Maybe because uh, the east, right from the get-go, uh, was more militarily able to repel them if they had uh, assaulted them. But that may have been one factor. I, I wouldn't uh, profess to say that is the only one or the major one, but uh, that, that is certainly one. Now, I would note for the next thousand years, uh, almost that entire period, the Eastern Empire uh, kept its money sound. Hmm, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, you did not have the Byzant, the gold Byzant, uh, the currency of the Eastern Empire, was not depreciated, uh, which did that, then did not cause the economic disruptions uh, that the policy of inflation produced in the western part of the empire. So that may have been a factor, too. This brings me to my last question. You mentioned inflation. You talked about the importance of sound money. And my question is this, and it's one of these questions that I think is being asked a lot today, but it's also been asked at different points of history whenever we're dealing with times of significant civilization or cultural change. My question is this, insofar as you can draw parallels, because I'm always hesitant about, my, I myself am very hesitant about drawing too close parallels between particular historical epochs, but what parallels do you see today between the decline of the Roman Empire, and different things we see happening in Western democracies today? Well, that's a big issue. There are many similarities. Uh, you reference monetary policy. Uh, certainly, I see parallels there. As the Roman welfare warfare state grew, the demands upon the central government to spend uh, continued to grow. Uh, it uh, scrambled to find ways to pay for that. And ultimately, and this is not uh, the first time in history, nor would it be the last, 
a government uh, forced to the wall financially will sooner or later uh, resort to currency debasement. Uh, the Western Roman Empire did it big time, uh, de- reducing the precious metal content of their coins from as high as 98, 99% at one time to less than 1%, uh, diluting the value of the currency and causing all kinds of economic disruptions and derangements uh, and, and harms uh, as a result. And we do the same today. We just do it in a different way uh, because we have not uh, coinage so much as we have uh, the creation of credit and paper money. But we uh, see the same parallels in monetary policy. But even that, uh, even though it, that causes tremendous problems, even that is a symptom of something much more far-reaching, and that is a change in people's character, a change in their perspective on the proper role of government and their responsibilities to their fellow citizens. Uh, When you see people adopt the idea that, hey, uh, the government should do it, not me, don't ask me to get involved, I'll just send the money uh, to uh, the government and let them take care of problems that we used to take care of themselves, Sooner or later, that leads to political demagoguery, it leads to deficit spending, it leads to uh, financial hanky-panky and and ever higher taxes and debt and inflation of the currency. And uh, in many ways, we are seeing that throughout the Western world today. Larry Reed, thank you very much. We're very glad that you could join us for Acton Acton Line, our podcast. Wonderful that to have this conversation with you, and I'm sure our audiences will greatly uh, value your presentation at Acton when you're here with us on, I believe it's the 8th of August. Yes, I'm looking forward to it uh, very much. Thank you, Sam. My pleasure. Thanks, Larry. Thank you for listening today. If you want to learn more about the topics in this episode, I've linked all the articles and extra resources in the show notes, and those are published at blog.acton.org. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. This episode is produced and edited by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Doug Nagel.